Irene, welcome to the show. For anybody that hasn't come across your work before, could you just give us like a brief introduction about the work that you do? That would be good to hear. Yeah, um, so I'll do the quick version and then we can get into details if we need to. But I am, I'm originally trained in exercise science and biomedical science and all that human health and nutrition and fitness stuff. And then um, along with that, I followed a path of going more into the mind-body world, um, namely the, and I'll just name them, the Feldenkrais method. I, I learned and trained in 2004, um, somatic experiencing, the work of Peter Levine. I've gone the full distance with that um, up to even assisting at his masterclass levels. Um, and then also trained in something called somatic practice, which is the work of Kathy Kane um, and also Stephen Terrell. Um, and that work combined with SE really encompasses sort of the, the, the uh, we could say the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The holy grail, if you will, of somatic trauma healing work at the, the body, nervous system, environment level. And so I, in my current work, I bring all these things together, the Feldenkrais, the SE, the somatic practice, I'm currently into online learning and teaching. However, I was in private practice for a lot of years um, from really 05 up until just about four years ago. Um, and so, yeah, I call myself, there's no real word for us. Um, the way, you know, a psychotherapist would be called a psychotherapist or a physical trainer or therapist would be called that. But I tend to call myself a nervous system expert and a somatic practitioner. So we'll, we'll, we'll call myself that today. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So you obviously use so many different, or you've integrated so many different approaches and modalities to, to get to where you are. I'm just curious, you know, have you thought about any um, foundational principles that you sort of, that cut across all of these different, these fields? Yeah. If I put, my Feldenkraisian hat on. So that's the work of Moshe Feldenkrais. One of the principles that I adore and use all the time from his side of things, and it leads into also Peter's work, is the importance of um, awareness, self-awareness, body awareness, environmental awareness, really being in the present moment and being with the body and that would be one of the, the key primary principles. But then from there, you kind of open up Pandora's box because most, and I'm being very general here, but most humans until they've gotten into this work, they don't usually know what that means or how to even attempt to bring awareness to their bodies or to their consciousness or to however you want to call it, um, just because of our upbringing, our conditioning, society tends to kind of cut us off from our awareness and our body, as you probably know. Um, definitely like that here where I live in a British colony in Canada. You know, people are very, very good at keeping it all in and keeping it together and not showing emotion. And so again, that awareness piece of, wow, you know, am I actually holding on to emotions or am I not feeling my body, even though I'm a marathon runner, which happens, um, those sorts of things. So I would say that would be one of the first ones. Um, and then after that, something that I 
again, this kind of falls through the neuroplasticity world um, is the importance of sequencing people's healing and incrementally helping a person gain that awareness, not in one big blowout, you know, session that leaves them completely spent and not knowing what hit them, you know, a box of Kleenex kind of later, but as you would a child teaching them the ABCs, how to crawl, how to roll, you know, you can't teach an infant everything they need to know, not even in one year, let alone five years. And so another part of, we could say this holistic view of healing the human system is we have to see the system is needing time to integrate, time to learn, because that's really the primary thing that I teach my students is, is I teach them how to learn again, how to relearn how to learn, how to not beat themselves up when they're learning something new, even when they get something wrong. So again, this incremental piece by piece, we would call it titration in the somatic experiencing world. You've probably come across that little drops um, that essentially, if we use that metaphor, eventually fill up the bucket. Um, but we don't want to overflood the system. So those are like the two first ones that I'll, I'll speak to. No, that's really interesting. Um, just, I would totally agree with what that, what your teacher told you. I think you said Sue Crawford about, um, yeah. you have an incredible gift to make complex things really simple. And anybody that's listening to this, um, that's interested in learning polyvagal theory or get, getting an introduction to it. That's actually how I discovered Irene. She's got an introduction to it online on our youtube channel which is which is a great resource yeah um so next irene i'm just curious to ask uh what your work focuses on nervous system regulation and you're really sort of working at the level of the nervous system um most of the people listening to this will be sort of in the business of helping others you know and i'm just why would you say it's it's vital for people to particularly mental health professionals to understand how the nervous system works Gosh, do we have five hours? <laughs> well, in all honesty, um, the nervous system, there are many parts to it. And you just mentioned the polyvagal. So I definitely encourage people to look those up on my site because it's not all accurate what you get out there when people are teaching about it. Um, but the thing with the nervous system that we have to understand is there's a couple different type. There's different nervous systems in the body. Mainly we have our central nervous system, which is the brain and the spinal cord. So central to the body. And then the peripheral nervous system, which is all the nerves that, that snake and feed out of the brain and the spinal cord. And the vagus nerve, as one example, is a cranial nerve that comes out of the brain and then it feeds through and it goes like everywhere. When we have had any type of uh, chronic stress, trauma, abuse, adversity, birth trauma, trauma, medical trauma, attachment wounds, war, PTSD. I mean, just let's just put them all in a bucket. That doesn't just impact, you know, your, your pinky finger. It doesn't just impact the amygdala. It doesn't just impact the gut. It impacts the entire, entire system. My best analogy to pull one in is, you know, when you go on a plane, and you're pressurized and sometimes your ears feel that pressure and you, you feel it in your body um, and you'll have a water bottle 
that, you know, as soon as you're up, you, you can release the pressure and you have toothpaste in your bag and it might explode and your pens might explode. So that, that pressure is impacting not just your ears, it's impacting everything in that plane, right? And so when we've had some kind of trauma, stress, whatever you wanna call it, everything in the body is being impacted. And so the nervous system, I'm getting a bit more distinct at calling it not just nervous system work, but somatic and nervous system work because our muscles, our organs, our movement patterns, how we connect with the world, how we don't connect with the world. Everything is impacted when we've had a real chronic adverse thing happen to us or a series of things or an entire lifetime. And so for mental health professionals, um, first of all, one absolute necessary resource is um, the book, when the, body keep the, the Body That Keeps the Score. I'm getting that wrong, I think. The Body That Keeps the Score, Best Bessel van der Kolk. It's a, it's a tricky, it's a hard read if you're not already versed in that. Cause I, and I will put a disclaimer. There are some folks who have read it who are more in the lay population and it's been incredibly triggering. So it really is meant for professionals, but as he states in that book, and I'm paraphrasing the whole book, pretty much all most psychiatric illness, mental disorders are based in the physiology, in the nervous system, in the body as a result of the things that the body endured and survived. Mm -hmm. And so with that, when there is, let's say what we would call a mental trouble, a trouble of brain processing, we have to look at the whole system and what within this entire web of nervous system, nerves, the physiology, how um, the body moves through space, all of it has to be kind of played with and addressed and, and kind of dissected. Um, so that's kind of a first level. I'll pause and see if you have any pieces. And then of course I have more to say. Um, no, that, that makes sense so far. Um, we interviewed Pat Ogden for this summit mm -hmm. as well from Centering Motor Psychotherapy. Yeah. And one of the things that she said that really sort of stuck out for me, she's like, the body tells a story. And it seems to be what you're saying as well, that the body has a memory. Yeah. You know, these things get stored on some level. They do. The body has um, intricate, implicit, we would call it memory. Um, and that is what it's called, implicit memories. Um, and there's different types. Like I'm assuming you and I both know how to tie our shoelaces. And we learned that when we were real wee and little, and we probably don't remember how, just like riding a bike, that's a procedural implicit kind of memory that's written in the, not just the brain, but in the, the motor memory, right? Have you ever tried to tie your shoes the other way? You know, I don't, it, it, don't think so. <laughs> it's really difficult if you try to do it because it's just an automatic movement pattern. And so Pat's right. I mean, Pat originally studied with Peter. So they come from the exact same world and when we've had, and I'll just use one example. So let's just say, and this doesn't mean that this is the only example, but let's say someone was um, hit when they were young, you know, they were abused physically, which happens sadly all the time. And that little person couldn't defend themselves because they were super little, or if they tried, they got hurt more. 
So they stop the defensive pattern of wanting to push or scream or kick or run. That's fight mm. flight, right? Mm. And then that person is now 30 years old, 40 years old, 16 years old, and they can't figure out why they have so much anxiety, mm. why they're so, so scared of people, or they're scared of certain people when they're on the side to them. And then we can trace back, oh, every time mom hit me, she was on my left side. So whenever someone comes to the left side, there's a little bit of a a flinch, right? Yeah. Kind of for those that are just listening, kind of doing a body movement that would appear to be like a wanting to retract. And so that is not conscious, that is unconscious. So that is that autonomic nervous system that isn't just storing that in the brain, it's storing it in the sensory motor aspects that never got to be actually played out. So we would call that, at least in somatic experiencing, um, the need to deactivate stored traumatic procedural memory of fight and flight. Now, another part of that is the freeze response, which is kind of on that spectrum of survival uh, impulse, stress, energy. One thing, and this actually was just coming up in conversation with a student the other day, a lot of times people feel that when they feel the freeze response, when they're doing their healing work, they think that's bad. Like I shouldn't, I don't want to go into freeze. I don't, it's like, actually, no, <laughs> you want to touch into that freeze energy without fear so that you can unlock the layer of freeze that you've been holding on since that time when your mom did the thing to you, blah, blah, blah. But you want to feel the freeze and feel the terror and the immobility of not being able to shout, kick, whatever, but then stick with it long enough and stay alert to it. And this is where being connected to the environment and that awareness that I mentioned is super important because then, and I'm kind of giving you like a grand model of how this might work, that person would then as a 30 year old or whatever, act out the movement or the words or the scream or the kick or I'm running, running, I got to run. And then they would complete that incomplete procedural memory because they've had enough capacity to dip into and feel the absolute terror that is coupled with that freeze response. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> Normally we think that we should avoid things like the, the freeze response, or whatever, but you're saying in order to properly heal, you have to be able to sort of access it from, from a, you know, a conscious state and act, act it out, act the trauma out and process it. And then you can move yeah, on from there. Pretty much. It, it's, it's, it, if we don't, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to backpedal a bit. I would never ask someone to do that on like, say, if I was working one-on-one -on -one the first session. I would only do that if I knew that that person had already foundational capacity mm. and the ability to handle that level of intensity. This is where, again, that incremental titration piece comes in. Um, it would be like putting someone on the top of Everest, Mount Everest, or even a base camp who has never exercised in their life and asking them, I need you to do some jumping jacks right now. They physically wouldn't, like they would probably pass out of hypoxia 
and they wouldn't even be able to maybe breathe in that atmosphere because their system is so deconditioned. So we have to think about this nervous system healing stuff in the same way. If, you, if a person has never had real fundamental training to stay in their body under even minor stresses, we cannot ask them to dip into the scariest memory of their life in that moment and say, let's just figure this out. We have to kind of layer it. And what actually happens, Niall, is when that foundation and capacity has been built and there's tons of resiliency, um, a person actually welcomes that feeling of freeze mm. because they know, because again, this is another important part of the work that I do at least is educating my students because they know oh, wow, my breathing is going down. I'm all of a sudden feeling really cold. My vision is starting to go really, really tunneled. And I feel like I'm going to die. And if a person can be with that somatic quality while keeping their higher brain on board to witness it, that's also that awareness, um, they can then literally dip into that memory be with it, see it, not re-traumatize themselves, act out, move, release, emote, whatever it is. Maybe it's just heat that comes off the body. Maybe it's tears, doesn't matter, whatever it might be. They can be with it, let that stuff out, stay present, know that it is, uh, we're doing this on August 2nd. Uh, you know, I know that it's this day, the year is 2022. My name is Irene and I'm feeling that terror and I'm gonna go on this roller coaster ride. And then they do it staying present. And then they literally, if you think about a roller coaster, it comes in and then it just sort of levels out and everything settles. That's what we want to do in the case of shock trauma. Early trauma is a little different, but with that kind of um, event, that's what we're actually wanting to dip into. And I think a lot of what happens is people feel that freeze and then they think they're going backwards in their healing. And it's often because they haven't been given the education to know this is actually really good. Just like a lot of people, when they start to do this work, at least my work, they'll start to feel what we would consider um, or call anxiety. And I actually, that's good. Cause that means that your freeze response isn't clamping down all that survival stress that you've had to bury away because you didn't have the capacity to be with it. And so, you know, this isn't just me speaking. This is how Peter taught us. It's like when you start to work with someone, especially someone with a very chronic, let's say fatigue condition, an autoimmune condition, and they've been so numbed out, you have to almost say, are you willing to go through a period of life where you're going to be a little unstable with your heart, with your body, with your sympathetic arousal, because you have been suppressing this for so long, which is what causes, as we know, these syndromes, these autoimmune conditions, these pain conditions, um, because it can be a lot. At, but from my experience, Niall, when we teach people these increments and really get them so dialed in with the basics, the the turmoil is a little less intense because they've they it's like they're really good pilots of their system 
you know, they've, they've, they've mastered the basics. So now when they're going I'm full of analogies today, they've mastered the basics of flying a plane. So now when they go into turbulence, it's, ah, it's no big deal. We know that this plane is built for this and it, it is, and it will literally come out of the, will come out the other side. Right. So yes, that's a very quick example, somewhat of healing at this somatic slash nervous system, stored memory, mental, physiological level yeah you've ex you've explained that very well um so it's it's really using this process of titration to gradually build up this sense of groundedness in in clients and in people and then that that then allows them to go through the the freeze response or the revisit the trauma from a place of strength where they, they have the capacity to to cope with it is that fair to say Totally fair to say, and I'd add maybe a couple more descriptors, um, more resiliency. They have more capacity to stay in flow, even when they're experiencing a really big emotion or energy or, um, you know, heat wave in their body or tremor in their body. When they feel these, um, we could call them symptoms, but I don't like that because it's so medicalized. So when they feel these sensations or these body movements that make zero sense, they stay open in their, in their, um, we would call them in our work diaphragms, the joints, um, some Eastern traditions might call them the chakras. It's like, we're staying open in the energy centers. The chi is flowing with this tsunami wave that's going, because even in a tsunami, it's still flowing, right? It's just really mm -hmm. big. Um, so yeah, the, this ability to stay resilient, aware, tethered, this is super important to the here and now. That is incredibly important for people who are healing from, let's say, near death experiences or surgical trauma or real sick, like horrific abuse where they've had to literally pull themselves out of their body because it's just been too intense to stay in their body. Like that classic, I literally floated out of my body and saw myself, um, which is what happens in a lot of these instances. So part of the work is really teaching a person to stay grounded as you use that word and embodied at the same time. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, it seems super simple and it is. And because of our human conditioning, we've become really good at compartmentalizing how we heal. It's like, okay, I'm going to sit and just work on meditation on this day, at this hour. And then I'm going to do my fitness routine on this day, at this hour, I'm going to do my art class on this day, at this hour. But really part of, I think, uh, the holistic element of healing is very holographic. We're wanting to have the ability to have all that stuff happening at the same time, whether we're talking to someone, cooking food, walking the dog, or we are doing a more spiritually based practice and i think what has really i think is being uncovered is how prevalent spiritual bypassing is in the somatic and mind body communities that people think that they're they're doing higher consciousness work with meditation but really what's happening is they're going into a freeze response and they're not actually present but they think that they're in a good place because they feel good, but that feel good is actually the system being numbed out. I'm sure you've come across that in your talks with people. That's that's so interesting. And I heard you, I've heard you say elsewhere that, you know, once you get the somatic 
peace in place and the nervous system in place and properly, you know, organized, um, things like spirituality sort of emerge as a byproduct, but you can't just jump. You have to get that right first. It's the foundation, you know, it is so cool when that happens because it often is not something that people are, are thinking is going to happen when they do this nervous system rewiring regulation work, um, is they'll find themselves, And not because now they're sitting, you know, and praying necessarily, they're just feeling one, more of that oneness with whatever you want to call it, whether it's God or the universe or the multiverse or the animals or the ocean, it doesn't matter. It's, it's not just me. And what often occurs when we've had so much adversity and stress is we really think that we are totally alone and there's nobody, there's nothing out there. There's like a void. And so, yeah, what's really cool is I, when I see my students start to really become like masters of their nervous system physiology, they just find themselves being more um, spiritual by default they find themselves being more kind to strangers who are pissing them off, you know? And it's sort of what these masters say, be kind, be empathetic, don't cause a fuss, just be with the person, even if they're being crazy to you, you know? And some people will meditate till the cows come home to try to acquire that, but it's often um, with force and willpower. But from what I've seen, when the human system has resiliency and this regulation, on board of the nervous system and we're somatically connected and our movements have fluidity and we're healthy, of course, food and diet and exercise and all that is important. Um, But when we get this physical like 3D vessel really dialed in um, to sound a little more, um, what we could say out there, our higher consciousness, our technologies of consciousness, telepathy, they they just get sharper and they come so much more easier. Like uh, people just are saying, wow, I, I am making decisions like I've never done before, or I've just rekindled with an old person who I never thought I would ever see. And I thought about them and, and boom, there I see them at the supermarket or like there's this really interesting intuition that builds from this solid regulated nervous system state. It pits you back in the flow of life, you know, properly, you know. Um, And one thing I will add that's because it's important is when we have this regulation on board, it also keeps us out of danger. Okay. And that comes back to that polyvagal world and what what Porges, Stephen Porges coined is neuroception. Um, I'm actually thinking of a student's story I have to share, uh, she she lived or used to live in like somewhere in the Alps, somewhere in Europe. And she was driving one day and for whatever reason, she had an impulse to stop her car. And I don't know if you've driven through the mountain Alps of like Switzerland and Austria, but there's like, you know, they're little roads and there's lots of grass and it's not like Canada in any way, shape or form, but she had this desire to stop her car. She went with what her gut said, even though there was no reason to, her car was fine. And all of a sudden, Kyle, a a house that was being lifted with a crane dropped right in front of her on the road. Like they lost it. And I'm getting tingles in my head just thinking about it because in that moment when that happened, she was 
regulating and learning to follow the impulse of her body. And we were teaching her that and it made zero sense. Why am I stopping my car? I do this drive every single day. So those are the kinds of things that we start to experience where we are put into, where we're not put into danger. We're actually into better safety because of this, whatever you want to call it, intuition, gut sense, introception, neuroception. It's pretty cool. That reminds me of something I've heard elsewhere. Um, and this might be complete nonsense. So feel, please feel free to ch- <laughs> fact, fact check me on this. I can't, I can't wait to hear um, but I think during the, the, the tsunami in 2000, and, was it 2003, um, the one, the really bad one in, in Southeast Asia, um, mm-hmm. apparently barely any animals were killed because for some reason they just got out of the area a lot quicker than uh-huh. humans did because they sensed something was coming or whatever, you know? Oh no, that's, I mean, I don't have to fact check, check, check that. Like that's, I'm, I am sure that they could feel the pressure change in the water, the vibration. Um, yeah, they're like, something's not right. We need to get out of here. A hundred percent. I'm going to look it up after myself just to, just to, just to yeah, clarify yeah. that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's something, you know, you've mentioned there a few things, you know, it's not just about like, it's not just about being able to be regulated in one context. It's yeah. being able to, to bring this to almost every aspect of your life as a practice, you know, and from my interactions with you, Irene, you seem that you carry this regulated state with you through most of the things you do. Even the way, I think the way somebody writes an email is a very good indicator of how, how regulated they are. And your emails are very calm, focused, centered, you know, it's like, Oh, that's, that's easy. That's easy. Uh-huh. to read. You know what I mean? No one's ever um, given me that feedback. Thank you. <laughs> but you get, you get emails and it's just like someone just went and it's like, there's no thought into it. But anyway, I just, I want to make that right. comment. Um, well, to, to give my team credit, we do have someone who proofreads them. Okay. And I, I, I don't write an email in 10 minutes. Like I, I, I'm, I'm a writer at heart. Um, and then of course I still get test emails and I edit them. So, but I try to write them as a conversation mm. um, with that engagement. And sometimes humor is important as well, right? Or else it's just blah and dry. I'd like to ask now, Irene, to what extent do you think that our behaviors and yeah, our behaviors are hardwired? You know, what, mm. what to what extent are they are they locked in? That's a great question. Um, I did a video on this earlier this year. I'm going to see if I can quote myself. I might not be able to, but I had done the video in a, almost a reaction to something I had heard on an interview with someone else where they were saying that we're hardwired. And the example they gave was, um, he had heard of this story of a woman who had ridden horses when she was a teenager. And whenever she read, r- rode the horses, it was her way of having a cigarette, having a smoke. And so she would get away and smoke um, because the smell of the horse would kind of mask the cigarette smoke. Up. That was kind of the story. Fast forward to when she was um, an adult and had her own daughter. And she thought it'd be great to take her daughter out on horses because it was part of her life growing up. And apparently, as soon as she got on this horse and smelled the horse, and you know, there's a very specific smell, 
she had an instant craving for a cigarette. And so the, the person's assumption is we're just hardwired. That is never going to go away. And I would say, well, it depends on the tools you have to shift the wiring. If you're only working with the, the cognitive brain, which is I'm not, I don't want to smoke. I don't want to smoke or something more hypnotheric, you know, hypnotizing where you're just working with the higher brain and maybe the subconscious, then yeah, maybe you won't get rid of that craving but I would be like, what was going on in that household that made you have to hide? Because of mm -hmm. course, most teenagers don't want to know. They don't want their parents to know they're smoking. I get that. But you know, what, what was going on? What was the quality that was happening in your life? Like what was causing you to need to have that nicotine hit that is kind of soothing or can be stimulating for a person? Like what was going on somatically in the body and how can we dissect the sensation and the visceral reaction and the neurochemistry that's occurring when that nicotine hits the blood brain barrier and all those sorts of things. So it's like, are we hardwired or is the behavior? It's like, well, it depends on how you help shift it. So um, I think it, it really depends on what you're working with um, now because I like to kind of put another piece to certain things. Um, if someone had the kind of neglect that Bruce Perry talks about in some of his books, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Bruce Perry's work. I've heard of him, but I've never actually read any of his stuff. So he wrote the book, um, The Boy Who Was Raised, I think as a dog, Born for mm -hmm. Love is another book. He just co-wrote a book with Oprah on trauma, which apparently is really good. Um, but he is the psychiatrist that was brought in when like, and I'm, I'm again, making a generalization when like they would find a kid that has been in a kennel, like, tr like severe neglect or orphanages that they have studied. And I think Romania is kind of the classic, but I'm sure they're all over where babies are literally not touched, not played with, not talked to. Um, from what I've learned, that is not recoverable because we need to myelinate and have connection and we have to see faces and we have to talk and see all the expressions we have to be held. And even if we're being held and talked to and it's abusive, we still come out fairly civilized. But when we aren't learning those base level skills at the beginning, then yes, I, I actually, I always wanted to talk to him about this. I don't think that behavior can be changed because it was born out of true neglect and not teaching that human the, in, the intense really apprenticeship that a human needs to have full function, not just in their brain, but in their movements and their empathy. But yeah, Born for Love is like probably the, in my opinion, the one book that puts all the pieces together um, with all sorts of different stories that are quite shocking to say the least right um it's incredible that this man is still doing his work because he's seen he was like the doctor that i think was brought in after the waco crisis in texas you know with the with the davidian cults and and these kids that were just completely brainwashed and neglected and he's like these kids will never totally be normal functioning members of society i'm kind of missing i might be paraphrasing that but Essentially, so yeah, to go back, behavior is, 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 I don't think, hardwired for most of us, 
but it depends on the level of, of neglect. And if someone's listening to this right now and has access to a computer and can nod when I nod and can smile if I make funny faces, like then you're fine. Like you have the capacity to engage and see that. Um, so even the fact of wanting to learn this material and listen is pretty much a like, yeah, you're not hardwired, you can change. Does that make sense, that distinction? Yeah, totally. That's an important cool. thing important yeah. to make. Um, so I'm conscious of time, Marie. I'm going to just ask, ask a couple more okay. questions. Yeah. All right. yeah. um, so one of the things in research in this interview I find most interesting was your theory on uh, self-sabotage and why mm -hmm. we self-sabotage, you know? So could yeah. you maybe tell us about that there and yeah, your thoughts on, on why we do that? it kind of funnels into a little bit of what we've been talking about already. So again, if you were brought up with a lot of fear, a lot of um, being on edge, you know, having to expect that the humans around you are gonna treat you badly and that nothing good is ever gonna happen. You might see where I'm going here. <laughs> when someone starts to improve their lives, Maybe it's through listening to this conversation or seeing a therapist or starting to eat better. The moment they start to feel a rewiring, a change in that behavior, if you will, there's a part of them, again, if they don't understand how our system works, that will kick them back to the old pattern because mm. it's more familiar. Mm. And so when we start to pave a new way, like literally through the forest, if you think about that, it's like really gnarly, you know, like there's no path. It's much easier to go back to the path that is like fully graveled, paved, stop signs, stop lights. We know where everything is. It's easy. You can do that with your eyes closed, but you're going down this new path. that's so foreign. Like it actually might feel weird and scary when you're being better to yourself because it's so unknown. Mm. And so what often people will do, I think there's even a term, it's called health anxiety. Okay. Don't quote me on that, but I've, I've, I've heard it. And it's a person will get anxious because they're getting better. Wow. And this comes back to that thing that I mentioned about kids who have to fawn and change to be part of a really sick, dysfunctional family. Think about that. If you were raised for 18 years of your life in that kind of soup, and now you're in this great relationship and you've got money and you, you like what you do, like that's like, like 180, it's like you're in the upside down, <laughs> right? And so it's like, okay, this is actually good that everything in my cellular physiology is saying this is bad, but it's good. Yeah. And so then the person will, you know, pick a fight with the partner that they know totally loves them and doesn't mind them freaking out over the glass breaking on the floor, you know, or a person um, will be doing really well in their career and then they do something to not finish the project because I don't deserve goodness because I always failed my math tests to go back to me as a kid, right? Think how many kiddos were reprimanded and punished when they, they didn't do well. 
you know, so it's like, you don't do well with something. If you were in that boat of having that exposure to that toxic shame, you will throw yourself back into that and not even know why. And so that's a little uh, blip. I did a whole lecture on the sabotage thing, but yeah, it, it, it all comes back to our, our early years and what we were told we were able to have and deserve. Um, it's really, it's really interesting. And to see people break out of that is super cool because, you know, you'll have someone who's literally 70 years old, 70 years old, because we have, you know, elderly, elderly, I don't use, I don't like to use that word, but the older generations are in our programs and they'll be, they'll, they'll have this small win that is just so small, but it's so big. And it's so big because they've never acknowledged something good because nothing good ever happened. So that's like a little, little peek into the whole sabotage realm. I mean, it, it happens so much, so much. We're with you on the way, you know, so Thank thanks so you. much for your doing and wish you all the best going forward. Thanks so much, Niall, for having me. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with a weekend university premium membership. This gets you access to our master library of over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, as well as transcripts, CPD certification, quizzes, and unlimited access to the recordings from our annual conferences. For more information, please go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash membership.